Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Uh, A PSA before we get started. Um, Somebody drove a black Ford F-150 here this morning and uh, parked it on a snowbank. And we were all super impressed that the truck was able to go there, but the truck slid (laughs) (laughs) off the snowbank and is now blocking the entrance. So we don't want to embarrass... Oh, apparently he's not embarrassed. He's just owning it. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Max. Just high-five him when he comes back. We're actually talking about denying ourselves, like denying our true self and lying to ourselves this morning. I appreciate that. That was not even a setup. Uh, but, <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So anyway, um, Mark chapter 14. Yes, the Bible. We're here to talk about that. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 14. If you don't, there's a Bible beneath the chair in front of you or near you. And if you've been with us during Lent, you know we're walking through Jesus's journey to the cross from the moment he knelt in the garden and prayed, uh, not my will, but your will be done, all of the things that happened along the way. And I'll begin reading uh, in Mark chapter 14, verse 66. It says, while Peter was below in the courtyard, that's the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus is being tried. One of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she, again, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you are talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now this story is commonly referred to as Peter's denial of Jesus, which makes a lot of sense. Except for the fact this is not the whole story. It's not even the beginning of the story. And I would contend that this story is actually about two denials. Peter's denial of Jesus... And Peter's denial 
regarding what's true about himself. So to look at the beginning of the story, look up at verse 27 of Mark chapter 14. Jesus is having a meal with his disciples that we know to be the Passover meal, now referred to as the Last Supper. And he says this to them, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus responded, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. Jesus is in a very intimate setting, having a meal that he and all the disciples celebrated every year, the Passover meal, and this time they're in the city of Jerusalem, they're reclined around a table, they're looking at each other through this dimly lit room, and Jesus makes the prediction to which Peter counters him and says, I think you're wrong, you don't know me. I'm with you to the death. I'm committed to you. I got you, however you want to say it. And then Jesus responds to him and says, that's actually not what's going to happen, Peter. And Peter says, yes, it is. I'll be with you until the death. I'll go all the way with you. Now, Jesus knows where this whole thing is going for him, but he also has a sense of where it's going for the disciples. But Peter disagrees with him. And I wonder, as Jesus is there on his side and the smell of food is all around them and the wine has been poured, as Jesus looks at Peter, what is he feeling in this moment? Is he just kind of rolling his eyes? Or maybe is, is there a little bit of sadness in Jesus' heart and in his soul and in his gut? And I say sadness because I don't know if you've ever been with someone who's lying and actually believes the lies that they're telling, especially the lies about themselves. Someone who is deeply self-deceived, but it's painful. And Jesus seems to be able to see through all of that, and he's saying to Peter, you don't get it. It's actually going to go this way. And Peter's countering him saying, no, you don't get it. And I wonder, like, did Jesus want to keep the conversation going? Did he want to grab Peter and shake him and say, snap out of it. You're going to do this. It's better that you know it now. Did Jesus just want to counter the argument? Yes, you will. No, I won't. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Or did Jesus maybe, why didn't he just remind Peter of all the idiotic things he had already said and done as his disciple? Like, Peter, do we really need to review all of these things? Because you're a little bit of a moron. And every time I've disagreed with you and you disagree with me, I've been right. Like, why didn't he say that? You see, I hear these words of Jesus where he says, listen, you're going to disown me three times. Interesting translation, because the word can be deny or disown. You're going to disown me three times before the rooster crows twice, which is right around midnight. 
And Peter says, absolutely not. Sometimes I hear these words as Jesus like condemning a future sin. But part of me wonders, is Jesus not giving Peter a, a hint or maybe a nudge? Kind of setting him in a direction so that he can see what's actually true about him. Pointing him in a direction. Whatever Jesus' motivation, Peter seems completely and totally unable to hear it. Peter is living with really a, a false idea of who he is. After the meal, they go outside, they go to Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Jesus is arrested, and it says that when he's brought to the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, Peter follows at a distance, and he puts himself in the courtyard near a fire where other people are warming themselves. And then it says this young woman walks up to Peter, and the literal Greek translation is that he looks at her and says, how you doing? <laughs> and she says, you're with the guy that they're trying to kill. Now, we're never given the motivation for Peter's denying knowing Jesus. But if you're with somebody and you are around a group of people who are trying to kill that person, how willing are you to be like, yeah, we're buddies? She says, you were with him. And then he says, I do not know him and I do not understand what you are talking about. What's fascinating about that sentence is it is an exact quote of the legal proceedings for an official denial of accusation in the Jewish law. Peter all of a sudden becomes very formal, and he legally denies an accusation that is put up by this young woman in the courtyard. Then he sees, sees that she's not going to relent, so he tries to get away from her and goes into the entryway, but she's not going to relent, so she walks out after him, tells everybody that's standing there, I know who this guy is. He's with the one that they're trying to kill inside. Peter denies it again. And then a little bit later, they're like, come on, we know you're from Galilee, probably because of his accent, and we know that he's from Galilee, and it's a little bit coincidental you're both in the same place. Aren't you one of them? And then it says Peter starts calling down curses. And he swears or he takes an oath. This is now, again, Peter pretending to be an attorney. Because he is basically saying, may I be dead if I'm lying to you. This is the strongest denial you could legally take in the courtroom. Peter is swearing up and down, I don't know him. And if I do, you can kill me. And right as he does that, the rooster crows the second time. Right as he speaks those words, the rooster crows and Peter hears it. Luke gives us a detail that's even more painful. He says that Jesus turns and looks at Peter. Have you ever had an experience where you're saying something about somebody that you don't want them to hear and they walk into the room and you hit the panic button like, did they hear that? Anyone ever had that experience? Oh, so many honest people. I was, in my head, I was like, no one's going to raise their hand and be like, yeah, I've gossiped. <laughs> By the way, all of you should be raising your hands because someone heard it. It's that moment of 
Jesus turns and looks at him, and I wonder what Jesus was thinking. I don't think it was like a, told you so. I mean, he could have done that. I don't think it was Jesus shaking his head in disappointment. I don't think it was Jesus upset like Peter, W-T-H, W-T-H, what the heck? Because <laughs> that's what that means. Um, that's what we say, right? Peter, seriously, are you kidding? I don't think there was this anger in him. I think Jesus was heartbroken. Because for this kind of denial to happen, there had to be commitment and relationship first. If you've ever felt that sting of betrayal, if you've ever had someone turn their back on you, if you've ever had someone say things about you in a condemning way to gain favor with others, Jesus knows exactly how that feels. I think when Jesus looked at Peter, there was deep, deep sadness that a friend would do this to him. But I also think that there's deep sadness in the heart of Jesus because he recognizes that Peter has finally recognized and spoken the truth about himself. Ben Witherington says this about Peter's statements and denials. He says, the third time Peter denies, he curses and swears, I don't know the man. The irony is, of course, that he is right. He does not really know or understand Jesus. Just hours before, they're at an intimate dinner, reclining at a table in a dimly lit room, surrounded by people they've spent the last three years walking around with, and Peter is glancing and looking at Jesus. They're making eye contact. Now, hours later, they look at each other again. But I have to believe the feelings are completely and totally different. Mark tells us that Peter fell down and wept. This is not like the kind of weeping where it's eyes brimming with tears, like you've just finished another episode of This Is Us or something like that. This is not like a little sniffly. This is, this is sobbing. This is convulsing while you cry. This is like ugly crying. It's the kind of weeping you do in the midst of deep pain and of deep sorrow. When you are totally and completely undone, that's exactly where Peter is. And I don't think it's only because he recognized what he had done to his friend. I think it's also because Peter recognized for the first time what was true about himself that he never in a million years believed could ever be true. Peter, we might say, got a glimpse behind the mask. Jesus talks about these masks that we wear. If you read through the Gospels, he frequently refers to people as hypocrites. Now, hypocrites, this is actually a term from the Greek theater. In the Greek theater, actors would wear masks that had exaggerated features so that people way up in the cheap seats could see what their character was. And the actor then would portray whoever the mask said they were. 
So in some senses, they were acting. They were actors. They were putting something on for everyone else to see, and they were projecting something else out into the world. Hypocrites. It's interesting, Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist, used the term persona to talk about the same thing. And the persona also comes from the theater and speaks about a mask that someone would wear. It's this idea that you are showing the world, this is who I am. And in doing so, you're saying, and this is who I want to appear to be. Richard Rohr, in talking about this concept of hypocrite and masks, says this. He says, the ego wants to eliminate all humiliating or negative information to look good at all costs. Jesus calls this self an actor, a word he uses 15 times in Matthew's gospel, though it usually translated from the Greek as hypocrite. The ego wants to keep us tied to easy and acceptable levels of knowledge. It does not want us going down into the personal unconscious, or in Jung's term, our shadow self. The shadow includes all of those things about ourselves that we don't want to see, are not yet ready to see, and don't want others to see. So we try to hide or deny this shadow, most especially from ourselves. We will do whatever we can to keep the mask on. And by the way, this is a human phenomenon. So if you're sitting here right now and you're like, oh, this is a sermon that Sarah really needs to hear. <laughs> no, you need to hear it. Um, and so does Sarah, okay. <laughs> this is a human thing. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why social media took the world by storm. Social media is like this invention and we're like, wait, we all get to put on a mask and everyone's going to like it? Awesome. And so what do we do? We create what sociologists now call our second self. We create a persona online for other people to see. And that's why everyone's like, man, your vacation looked amazing and your kids were perfect. <laughs> I can't believe they've never cried. What we do is we put on a mask and we call it Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or Be Real or whatever. I don't know. I'm losing. I'm, I'm getting old. I don't know what the newest thing is anymore. By the way, when are we going to stop saying X, formerly known as Twitter? I think we all know now. Eventually, Prince changed his name back. Maybe Elon Musk will be like, okay, it's Twitter again. I don't know. But we have this way of putting out this self into the world so we can say, this is who I am. Carl Jung warned about getting behind the mask. Even though he said your persona, your mask, is a really powerful gateway into your deeper self, he warned that when you come to yourself, you risk confrontation with your true self. An unadulterated Confrontation with your true self, he says, is almost always devastating because you finally see what's real. You look into a mirror and what it reveals makes no excuses and no filters. I was talking with a friend several weeks ago who's years out from healing after he come totally and completely blew up his life and his family and his job and everything. 
And I was asking him how he was doing, and he was telling me about a conversation with someone else who was at the very place he was years before when he blew everything up. And I said, well, how's he doing? He said, well, he's just still in denial. He said, I get it. And he said to me, he said, I could not face all the things that I had done. He said, but even more, I couldn't face who I was that allowed me to do all those things. And I had walked with him through a lot of those years after he blew his life up. And he said, I would lie to your face. I would lie to my wife's face. I'd lie to my, he said, I lied to everybody. He said, it wasn't until one by one people began saying, hey, I can't do this with you anymore. It doesn't seem like you want healing. It doesn't seem like you want to move forward. And he told me about a weekend trip he took and he said, something broke in me. And he said, I finally came to grips with the fact that I did all of that. And he said, not only was I torn apart because of all of the people that I had wounded and hurt in the midst of it, he said, I was undone because I came, this is what he said, face to face with myself and I couldn't handle it. But that, that's actually where his journey began. And I wonder when we hear about Peter falling down and weeping, is that the moment that he came face to face with himself and his healing journey actually began? This is actually not where the story ends. I mean, we know that Jesus is eventually carted off to Pilate. But what about Peter? Like, what was that night like for him? Staggering back to the place where he was staying? Like, how many times did he replay that scene? Did he still feel the warmth of the fire on his hands? Did he still hear that young woman's voice? You're with that Nazarene, Jesus. Did he go through like, why didn't I just say yes? Did he have a moment like, is Jesus always right? You know, I mean, what about when he heard the rooster crow the third time? And what about later that afternoon when people came back to where they were all staying and said, yeah, Jesus breathed his last. He would never get to make it right. He would never get the chance to go back. He would never be able to say, I'm so sorry. And what about Jesus? What was he carrying in his heart for his friend? Like as he's tried and sentenced and beaten and paraded through the streets, was he looking around maybe just hoping to see Peter one time just so he could say, hey, you don't need to carry the guilt with you anymore. Peter, I, I forgive you. Was he longing to have just one more look at Peter as if to say, it's okay. And then he died. But that's also not where the story ends. Because Mark tells us that very early in the morning on the first day of the week, some of the women took spices and went to the tomb where Jesus was laid to anoint his body. 
And while they were on their way there, they said, who's going to move the stone for us? It's very large. But when they got there, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. And curious about what happened, they walked into the tomb and they were startled because there was a young man there dressed in white. And Mark tells us this. The young man said this to the women, do not be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And Peter? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Did Peter, like, tell any of the disciples about what happened? Like, did Peter show up and everyone's like, are you okay? You look like you've been crying. He's like, oh, yeah, that trial was really hard. But I stayed there till the end. Did he disclose anything? Did he keep it to himself? I mean, if the angel had said to the women, hey, just go tell the disciples to go to Galilee, I imagine part of Peter would have been like, I don't... I don't know if I should go. I'm not sure I can make it. Tell the disciples and Peter. If you're Peter and you've spent the last couple of days eating your gut out, filled with regret, replaying the scene over and over, how do you feel when you hear, oh, and Peter, he really wanted to make sure you were there too. Do you have doubt? Like, did he really say that? He, he called me by name? Like, he wants to see me after what I've done? Was he nervous? A part of me imagines that Peter wept again, but for totally different reasons. That Peter wept again because he was graced and embraced and saved in that moment by the overwhelming grace of God. That Peter recognized that no matter what he had done, Jesus' response was, hey, no matter what you see behind the mask, I've seen it long before you did, and I still love you. And I'm still with you. And I'm still to here to walk through healing and ho toward wholeness with you. I would love to have been there the first time Peter saw him. And recognized that that last gaze while Jesus was at his trial would not be the last time they ever locked eyes with each other. I, I wonder... I wonder if we can trust this story. And I say that because it's really a story about grace. And that little detail at the end of Mark and Peter is an invitation. But I want, like, can we trust it? Maybe I should ask this. Do we have the courage to trust it? And I say, do we have the courage to trust it? Because to really experience grace at the level that Peter did demands that we become honest about ourselves. That we become honest about all of the things we would rather bury and ignore and push back because we believe they're not presentable to the rest of the world. And so we just keep our mask fixed tightly to our faces 
And over time, we actually begin to believe the mask is who we are. I wonder if we have the courage to go behind that mask, behind the persona, and actually begin looking deep within, recognizing that no matter what we find there, no matter how much we would like to keep it buried, that whenever we lay eyes on it, whenever we discover it and rediscover it, that grace is always waiting in the wings. One of the things I find interesting about Mark's gospel is from very early on in the Christian tradition, it was believed that many of Mark's stories were firsthand accounts that were delivered to him directly from Peter because we know that Mark was Peter's disciple. Which means Peter likely told him this story. Peter told a story that reflects so poorly on him as a disciple. Not only did he abandon Jesus, but the goal of every disciple was to become so much like your rabbi that if people saw you and heard you speak and saw the way you thought, they would say, oh, you must be the disciple of so-and-so. Peter's given that moment and he's like, nope, I want nothing to do with that. And he tells the story. One church historian said, Peter could have kept this buried because he was the only one there. But something happened to Peter on that night that allowed him years later to tell this story with the unvarnished truth. Maybe just so that we could begin to learn and begin to see that when we're honest about ourselves, God already knows in the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness has been waiting for us all along. Do we have the courage to trust this story? My prayer is that we actually would have the courage to trust this story. Only so that we might see however uncomfortable the truth about us is, however miserable it feels to be honest about what's within us and behind the mask, however painful that confrontation with ourselves might be, that we would realize that all of those things pale in comparison to the incomparably powerful grace and love found in the heart of God. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would give us courage to be honest about who we are, to be honest about the things we've done that we regret, the things we said that we wish we could take back, that we would not hide for fear of you, but we would recognize that you are not out there somewhere keeping score. Rather, you're ready to grace us with your presence and your love and your mercy. May we see this more deeply as we see ourselves more deeply. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. And all my friends said, amen. As we continue our time together, we're going to participate in Eucharist. Uh, if you wonder what grace looks like, it looks like Jesus taking some bread and taking some wine and saying, this is my body, this is my blood, broken and poured out for you.
with no expectation of anything in return. Only that when you're together, you would continue to participate in this over and over and over to remind yourselves of what grace looks like. We invite you to come as you're ready. And we invite all of you to come. This is not our table here at Denver Community Church. This is the table of Jesus who always built a bigger table when things got tight. And it wouldn't be a meal without you. And so as you're ready, we ask that you come. You can come up to the center using the middle aisle or you can come up to the sides using the side aisles. And we ask that you return using the diagonal aisles. In the tall glass, we have wine. In the short, we have juice. We ask that you would take the bread and dip it in one or the other and then partake. And as we prepare, hear these words from Matthew's gospel. He says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins come as you're ready. <laughs>